Okay, ladies, we are going to review Hamnet, Meg Maggie O'Farrell's novel. This was meant to be my choice, if you remember, ladies. And then you all persuaded me to get it. So I bowed down to you three and I read it. Within the first few pages, I thought, what is she going on about? Things like page 19, he steps one foot into the house, leaving the other behind him. Page 27, he is re-entering the narrow house built in a gap, a vacancy. Page 106, a pain enters in the back of his head and crouches there snarling like a cornered rat. Page 107, Agnes guides the serrated edge of the knife down through the loaf of bread, once, twice, falling onto each other. Now, this is a novel, a story. It's not a flipping poem. And, you know, and I accept all that oratory in a poem, but not in a novel. And I did looked up some reviews, and this is the review which I totally and utterly agree with. O'Farrell offers a repositioning of this story as though to suggest that while Shakespeare, whom she never named as such, was off in London, the real business of life was going on at home without him. Only when a grief-stricken Agnes travels to London to see his play, her husband has been writing that she bears the name of her dead son, do the words of her husband and wife align. It's a beautifully written novel, but I confess, I read it with fate and patience that only abated in its final pages. And then the other review, because the writing is so unrelentingly verbose, the pacing in Hamlet suffers and suffers badly. I just wanted O'Farrell to move on. I don't need to know that Shakespeare's hunger was like a rat snarling in his stomach, all the names of 500 different types of herb that Agnes uses. I just need the story to move. Please move on. Now, I agree with those. But I also, as I continued with the book because I had to, I found the story very moving, very, very touching. I did find some verbose writing, which I did find very, very sweet. Page 153, he can produce a looping, continuous flow of letters like a skein of embroidery from the tip of his quill. And I thought that was very beautiful. Page 286, how Hamnet was made. He is suddenly there behind her. His arms circle her waist, turn her around, pull her towards him. His head is next to her. She smells the leather of his gloves, the salt of his tears. They stand like this together, unified for a moment, and she feels the pull towards him. But she always does and always has, as if there is an invisible rope that circles her heart and ties it to his. Our boy was made, in, is what she thinks of him and of her. They made him together, they buried him together. He will never come again. I thought that was very, very beautiful and very moving. And then the other point, and I'll shut up in a minute, was, and Jean will know this because Jean is a twin as I am a twin. What is the word, Judith asked her mother, for someone who was a twin but is no longer a twin? Her mother, dipping a folded doubled wick into heated tallow, pauses but doesn't turn around. If you're a wife, Judith continues, and your husband dies, and you're a widow. And if it's a parent's die, a child becomes an orphan. But what is the word for what I am? I don't know, her mother says. Judith watches liquid slide off the ends of the wicks into the bowl below. Maybe there isn't one, she suggests. Maybe not, says her mother. 
so I enjoyed it. I took it on holiday with me and read it. I haven't actually finished it to the very, very end. I've been trying to just finish the last bit off. And I did find it very, very moving. And it, it caught me in tears in places. And I thought it was, as I said, touching and very well written. But apart from when she went on and on, when it was not necessary. So there you are. So that's my thoughts, dearest, dearest ones. Should we start with Jean? Oh, what? I've got hundreds of things to say. With. I think it. I think it probably helps if you know the play, know a bit about Shakespeare's stage practices, and well, you know, generally, if you've done Hamlet at school. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the main themes is contagion, isn't it? Contamination, something rotten in the state of Denmark. There's a lot of rottenness. Well, when that smell comes over her, she knows someone's going to probably die but she doesn't ever think it's going to be Hamlet so that contamination contagion she includes and I thought was very clever because it was the right thing to do she uses a lot of, you've brought a few of them up to similes about hunger being this hunger being that but uh, the one thing it was hard to get through which you have said is this seesaw between past and present, confused possibly by the fact that she writes in the present tense, which is my usually my pet hate, as if I, I keep going on about it, but it actually worked quite well. But I still found it odd, present tense, when you're seesawing backwards, forwards, backwards, forwards, and it did take a while to move on, as you say. I, so, I, found, I don't know if you found the same, but I found it took me ages to sort out who all the characters were. Oh, yes. Well, who's hmm. that? Well, it was a bit slow. It got better. Um, what have I got? I've got some notes. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, not from Small yeah. Island. <laughs> no, not really. Um, very, very atmospheric. Hundreds of similes. Um, uh, the contagion, the contamination, corruption um, was all there in Hamlet, the play, and Hamlet, Hamnet, the book. So she takes that on board. I always look up my authors because I always think they bleed into it somehow. And she sort of bled into it because she had that encephalitis when she was young and nearly died. So she knows what it's like to stare into the pit, even though she was only eight. So I think in some respects, that's why she wrote it. And the ghost is mentioned when you know they're talking about the battlements you know and everyone says have you seen old hamlet with his visor down etc etc the rotten scent um is a physical thing page 183 something rotten something out of kilter she says her descriptive language as you say is very poetic so oh i thought what was really good was just she describes agnes looks like she is hollowed out her edges blurred and insubstantial. She might disintegrate and break apart. She was like a raindrop um, that sort of dropped. Very poetic. Maybe, maybe too poetic. Um, actually, what, what it did have at the end, I thought, was a happy ending. There was a conclusion, a kind of um, full stop. 
because I thought there wouldn't be, but there was, which was quite pleasing. We don't often get full stops, do we, at the end? But she understood. Mm. But she understood that he was writing about a ghost and he swapped over because Shakespeare was old Hamlet the ghost. Well, one could go on forever, really. I'll, I'll let you guys carry on. Well, her description of her grief after Hamlet died and because I lost my husband, was just so real. And it really did get me because I felt everything she said, I felt and I went through. And so it was very, very touching for me. Anyway, let's go on to our list, please. I mean, this isn't the sort of thing that I normally read because, as you know, I like reading fluffy stuff. And this is very... It's, non-fluffy. Uh, not very non-fluffy. <laughs> But, I mean, it was beautifully written, very visual. You could picture the scene so easily. And I, I thought it was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. She just gave you a masterclass in how to write a novel, basically, I thought. Her characters were three-dimensional. In fact, some of them were fourth-dimensional. <laughs> they were so good. And her, her sense of place, you could imagine the smells, you could feel the noises you know you you were there which is extremely difficult to do and getting settled into the character points of view and then I was just getting used to one of the characters and then she would suddenly switch to a different scene scene in a different time now I did find that a little bit disorientating that would be something that um you know I wasn't quite so keen on but as Jean sort of pointed out her use of present tense I thought was very very clever actually because it unified everything. Because it's set in the 16th century, it could really distance you from the plot and the people and the characters and all the rest of it. But actually, because it's set in the present tense, the story unfolded in real time. And even the flashbacks and the little asides, I mean, how the flea got from Murano glass in, you know, wherever to... to... That was amazing. Really yeah, that was, was very close. That was in the middle of the book, yeah. where sometimes stories do tend to sag a little bit and she built that up there which I thought was very very clever the monkey flea she had some brilliant descriptions my favorite was when she was describing Agnes when she was pregnant she was like a woman who swallowed the moon I thought that was very good so yeah all in all I, I really like this book I thought it was brilliantly written it really did tug at the heartstrings and I love the ending I thought the in- ending was brilliant to me that was the best bit, bit of the book actually and her final line was just spot on. So, yeah, definitely recommend this book. So have you read any of her other books, Alice? I read I Am, I Am, I Am, which is a, it's basically a story about her life. It sort of goes through her life and her brushes with death as she goes through. And it's I mean, it's that's very, very cleverly done as well. And um, so you actually learn quite a lot about her. And um, she's had quite a lot of brushes with death. OK. And Felicity? Well, I have to confess that being a totally paid-up member of the Maggie O'Farrell fan club, I think yeah, she's, she did say that. I think she's absolutely brilliant. So she and, can do no wrong in your eyes. Well, I wouldn't go quite that far, but I do have to agree with Alice that for me this was a, a masterclass in superb creative writing. I found her sentences very poetic, almost sort of musical. And she has this kind of a cadence that just kind of repeats and draws you in. And her use of vocabulary is amazing. I think everybody's mentioned her similes 
her very creative similes. One of my favourites is she's describing some little kittens and saying they've got faces like pansies. And I thought that was just brilliant. You could just picture it. I loved all the detail around the herbalism, around the beekeeping, the farming. It just gives me, gives that, that everyday context to the history that makes you feel, I think like you said, Alice, I just felt as though I was there. I felt just immersed in the whole story. I can see why some people um, criticise it for a lack of pace, but I'm not that worried about pace personally. I like atmosphere and characters, so I was sort of fully satisfied by her approach to it. I think having said that, I agree with Eugene, it does benefit if you know Hamlet already. And I think she benefits from the fact that there is a backstory that a lot of people are going to know that she can kind of assume that they will know about. So in that case, she's got a bit of a leg up, if you like, through her choice of uh, subjects. I think for me, it sheds some real light on the issues that Shakespeare built into the play Hamlet. I think anyone who studied it will know that his troubled relationship with his father was sort of central to the play. And I think Maggie O'Farrell's book actually really brings out what that relationship must have felt like, the way his father treats him. You can completely suddenly see, wow, if that's what it was really like, then I can see why that theme actually recurs throughout the play Hamlet. I also love the description of the theatre. I love the description of London when they see it from afar and it's covered with a sort of grey smog and then they get they get nearer and it describes all the things that they see as, as they enter the city on horseback. I thought that was very evocative. But to me, that my take on it is actually, if you sort of put to one side all the wonderful description, descriptive language, in the end, it's a book about love. You know, Ham, Hamnet gives up his life for his sister out of love. And then Shakespeare almost echoes it at the end, where he turns into the ghost and sort of gives up his life on stage and brings his son back to life on stage. So for me, it was ultimately a love story. And I too loved the ending. Spoiler alert, you know, the way in which the couple were reconciled and the play sort of brought them back together, brought them back onto the same page, no pun intended, I thought was a really, really nice ending. Probably my only criticism was that there appeared to be like two types of character your creative and whimsical type like Agnes and Judith and your more kind of practical type like Susanna for instance and there was almost an underlying feeling that actually it was preferable to be whimsical and creative and otherworldly rather than sort of down to earth and practical and some of the I don't know the characters I thought some of them were fully rounded. Some of them were a little cipher-like to me. But again, that's that's a bit of a quibble overall. A I think cipher-like, did you say? Yeah, well, a bit two-dimensional, right. you know, uh, almost like symbols rather than real people. Yeah. Some of yeah. the some of the minor the minor ones, but that's a bit of a quibble. I mean, in the end, I absolutely uh, loved it. Loved the whole thing. So. 
everybody will agree to have studied Shakespeare's Hamlet would be very advantageous before you read this book. But I, I would say if you have studied it, it will give you, it will shed more of a light on it, perhaps make you look at the play in a different way. And perhaps if you haven't studied it or haven't seen it on stage, it might make you feel inclined to go and see a production of it. Yes, well, I haven't and I will. There's no question about that. Uh, there's a bit of a query, actually, because if you read the last bit, author's note, I can't see where she's coming from because everybody knows that the playhouses were empty. She says, lastly, it's not known why Hamlet Shakespeare died. His burial is listed, but not the cause of his death. The black death or pestilence, as it would have been known in the late blah, blah, is not mentioned once by Shakespeare in any of his plays or poetry. Come on. The whole of Hamlet is about pestilence, corruption, sickness, something rotten in the state of Denmark. Um, She wonders why there's no cause of death for Hamlet, the son. Um, But, of course, she speculates, but everyone knows the playhouses in London were shut virtually every summer through the 1590s because the plague visited every summer which is why the Queen and Court left and went on their progresses around the country casting manure and bankruptcy throughout the land um, but nobody stayed in the city in the summer yeah, yeah. They, it was shut also the um, city um, all the theatres had to move to the south bank because the city of London was run by Puritans who shut down the theatres at any excuse. So I don't know why that note's in there, because it makes a mockery of the whole. I think it's a mistake that was left in. Um, by the way, she loves playing Chopin, which is terribly difficult on the piano, <laughs> which is why you've got those cadences and that lovely sort of musicality. Thank you very much, ladies. We're now going into a short commercial break, and when we come back with part two, we will continue with Hamnet and also the book that we will discuss in August, which I believe is Felicity's recommendation. Okay, ladies, so welcome back. What we will do now is review the Sunday Times bestseller list that came out on Sunday. So what I'm going to do is go through the, first of all, non-fiction, the uh, hardbacks and then the paperbacks. And if you could uh, stop me if you know the book and we can just have a little chat about it. Number one, The Comfort Book by Matt Haig. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox and the Horse, Charles Makesy. Or Maxie, I should say. We talked about this last time. It's, you know, it's a wonderful book. Absolutely fabulous. Nobody else has read it. You must. It's fabulous. Um, Vaxera, number three. Sarah Gilbert and Catherine Green. The inside story of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine and the COVID-19 fight. Four, Bunny Man, Will Sargent. Echo and the Bunny Man's guitarist details his life before and after the band. I'm sure that's on top of your list for reading. <laughs> the Right Sort of Girl, Anita Rani. The broadcaster reflects on the challenges of growing up in two cultures. Landslide by Michael Wolfe. The inner workings during the final stages of Trump's presidency. Number seven, Trans, Helen Joyce. 
and looking to the lack of debate around trans people and its negative effects. Eight, Observations on Love, Natasha Lunn, a collection of experiences from authors and experts all about love. Number nine, Keep the Receipts, Talani Shonai and Melina Sanchez and Audrey Indome. The Receipts podcast trio share stories and life advice. I've never heard of any of them, have you? No? No, all shaking heads. Uh, Ten, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, Florence Given. The British Illustrator and Activist Guide to Challenging Patriarchal Narratives. There we are. So those are the hardbacks for non-fiction. I was just going to say, I think the trouble is you've got, to, you've got three fiction writers here who perhaps don't read much non-fiction. Yeah, I know right. I don't read very much. Um, well, just because we don't like non-fiction, other people might be interested in them. So the trouble is we just can't comment on them because we don't know much about them. Yeah. Really, <laughs> and with me, it's not that I don't like it. It's just I haven't really got time, right? To okay. Read it, you know. We'll, we'll, we'll carry on, right? So the paperbacks for nonfiction: More Than a Woman, Caitlin Moran, The Guide to Growing Older, and a Celebration of Middle-Aged Women. That should be quite amusing with Caitlin. Yeah, I have. I haven't read that one, but I've read her other books. Yes, which are all in, incredibly um, funny and insightful. So yes. Yes. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure this next one will be very good. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> number two, good vibes, good life. Vex King, a positive thinking, self love, and overcoming fear lead to lasting happiness. Number three, the wild silence. Raina Win, Raina and Moth. Raina and Moth. That's her husband, I think. Oh, is it? Ah. Oh. Take on a rewilding project, sequel to The Salt Path. Number four, um, Agent Sonia, Ben McIntyre, The Life of Mrs. Burton, an elephant housewife. Ex-elephant, an elegant. Frozen <laughs> 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 slip. An elegant housewife, mother of three, and Soviet spy. <laughs> Number five, How Animals Saved My Life, Noel Fitzpatrick. TV super vet on the power of animals to change lives for the better. Now, have you seen this chap? No, oh, Fitzpatrick on the telly. None of you. No? Possibly. Okay. Possibly. Uh, well, he's a super vet and he puts all these prosthetics onto animals and everybody. Oh, yeah. yeah. The dog with um, a foot, prosthetic foot, yeah. leg, and all sorts of things. Prosthetic legs. Yeah. Yes. Number six, The Asylum, Carol Minto, the story of Carol Minto's life. Suffering from abuse by family and doctors. Number seven, the white ship, Charles Spencer, on the sinking of the white ship in 1120 and the brutal repercussions uh, that followed. I need to get new glasses. Number eight, humankind, Rutger Bregman, an optimistic new perspective on the last 200,000 years of human history. Number nine, breath, James Nestor, an explanation of the hidden science and lost art of breathing. <laughs> a lost art, is it? Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> and number 10, The Salt Path, Raina Win, we talked about that earlier on. A couple of 32 years, discover the healing power of the natural world. I, I've read The Salt Path. You have. Yes, okay. we read it for our book club. And um, I have to say, it didn't go down particularly well with um, any any of us, really. I oh. think because I think just because we found her um, as a narrator incredibly um, self obsessed and actually quite selfish, especially towards her husband, 
who was actually quite unwell during the journey. Overwhelming sort of impression was that we couldn't warm to her as a narrator. So we we couldn't actually kind of really get behind them on the journey that they were doing. All right. But, um, it is a bestseller, so clearly lots of other people lots feel differently. Like it, exactly. Is it, is it a little bit like Eat, Pray, Love? I, I would say that and I didn't like it because <laughs> for exactly the same reason. I thought she was a very selfish woman, obsessed with herself and, you know, it was all about her the whole time. And I Yeah, that's, a, that's kind of an interesting parallel and I, I agree with you, Alice. I think, um, was it Elizabeth Gilbert, Eat, yes. Pray, Love? Yeah, I think she was quite self-obsessed as well. Personally, she was self-obsessed in slightly more interesting places on the globe. You know, like it was Italy, Bali, and somewhere else. Whereas Raina Wynn was self-obsessed in Cornwall, which right. I probably found a little bit, a little bit less interesting a place to be self-obsessed in. Although I know Cornwall is very popular at the moment with yes. vacationers. Well, so it's popular all the time. I hasten. To I kind of probably rather be self-obsessed in Bali, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> can only apologise. Okay, so we'll go to fiction now, which is more up your street, ladies. So the hardback, Nine Lives, Danielle Steele, a risk-averse woman decides to face her fears and embark on an adventure abroad. Number two, Under a Greek Moon, Carol Kirkwood, an actress escapes to a Greek island that holds 20-year-old memories. Now, Carol Kirkwood, isn't she the weather person on BBC? So yeah. she's taken to yeah, she is. Number three, Songbirds, Christy Lefter, a mother goes missing with only two people seemingly willing to search for her. Number four, the nameless ones, John Connolly. Charlie Parker's allies, Louis and Angels, seek revenge for the murder of a friend. Number five, hostage, Claire McIntosh. An air steward receives a chilling note soon after her long-haul flight takes off. Six, Malibu Rising, Taylor Jenkins Reid. Alcohol flows, sparks fly and secrets are revealed at a star-studded party. Seven, The Distant Shores, Santa Montefiore. A biographer becomes entangled in the disputes of her subjects. Can, can I just say about Santa Montefiore yeah. that I just can't bear to read more than a page of her because her, her English is so poor, oh, in my right. opinion. That's just in my humble opinion. I just think they're incredibly badly written. But again, I might be alone in this as they're bestsellers. It's a bestseller. What's her nationality? She's English. Uh, I really just can't get on with her style of writing at all. Okay. Number eight, Private Rogue. James Patterson and Adam Handy. A simple missing person case turns into a deadly mission for Jack Morgan. Number nine, The Missing Sister, Lucinda Riley. The six Daplays sisters search the globe in their mission to complete their family. And number 10, The President's Daughter, written by Bill Clinton and James Patterson. He has a team of writers who write as well. He comes up with the ideas and he has a team of writers who write his novels, which is why his name is always linked with some another author's name. Oh, I see. Okay. So, um, you know, uh, I mean, I don't know how much input he has in them, but he does have a team of writers who writes his novels. And um, they're very fast paced. They have like a hundred and four chapters in them, but the, pa- the they're only like three pages long. Whiz through them very, very quickly. Quite well constructed, but they, they are very formulaic. Okay, so now the paperbacks fiction. Number one is still the Thursday Murder Club, which we reviewed a few months ago. And, and oh, we loved. Sorry, Jean. 
And we loved. No, we didn't. <laughs> I did. <laughs> no, you said you would never read it again or you wouldn't read any more of Richard Osman's books. You did say that, Jean. Did I? Is that on tape? Then it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> I did nothing. <laughs> Number two, A Time for Mercy, John Grisham. Jake Briggins takes on an impossible case defending a teenage cop killer. Now, I love John Grisham's books, so that will be on my list. So I read the Pelican Brief and another one that he wrote. They are very, very well written. They're very mm. well written. Well, he's a lawyer and it's all about that. Yeah, yes, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, I've read a few of his and in, in, enjoyed them, actually. I've, enjoyed them. I've never read him. <laughs> Have no intention of. Oh, it's fine if you if you like a, if you like a legal if you like a legal book then they're they're great. I, I, you know, number Especially. three, V two Robert Harris, two twin stories set against the backdrop of the German missile campaign. Number four, The Appeal by Janice Hallett. To solve a small town mystery, two law students must sift through a pile of documents. Number five, The Midnight Library, Matt Haig. Another Matt Haig one. That's the one that we're going to be reviewing next ah, time. Okay. We'll talk about that in a minute then. Number six, The Secret Path, Karen Swan. To save an ill boy, a doctor must place her trust in a man who betrayed her years ago. Number seven, Troubled Blood, Robert Galbraith. Coleman Strike investigates a GP's disappearance more than 40 years ago. That's um, that's um, J.K. Rowling. So oh, Robert Galbraith. Yes, it is. Yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I personally can't get on with the Cormor and Strike books. I just couldn't get into them. But friends of mine absolutely adore them. So it might just be me. Number eight. That night, Gillian McAllister. Two sisters grapple with the lies they have been told to cover up a hit and run. Number nine. Missing pieces. Tim Weaver. Two women go missing, appearing unrelated until a detective links the cases. And finally, number 10, love your life, Sophie Kinsella. Reality bites when a couple return home after a whirlwind love affair abroad. Okay, so we'll go back to the Midnight Library, Matt Haig. Um, it says here, Fliss, because this is your recommendation, a magical library allows a young woman to live life's endless possibilities. Well, I can't, I can't say I know any more than that. I just know that the reason I recommended it was because I enjoyed How to Stop Time by Matt Haig, which I actually ended up reading twice. I thought I'd like to read some more of his work and that everybody else might enjoy him as well. Okay. I actually think he's, to use a bit of a hackney phrase, I think he's a very emotionally intelligent writer. And he's obviously somebody who's lived himself. You sort of feel that you get something him coming through in his books. Maybe the Midnight Library, if it's as good as How to Stop Time, might be enjoyable for okay. us and for our listeners. Right. Okay. Well, let's have a read. Okay, ladies, I think that's it. Anything you'd like to say before we close? Um, I would like to say I want to reincarnate or reinvigorate um, Arnold Bennett. Right. Because he's Edwardian, forgotten, attacked by Virginia Woolf for being boring, describes every brick in a wall, and is totally the opposite of a uh, spiritual or emotional. There's a certain power in describing every brick in a wall. So yeah. Arnold, Arnold Bennett, Rice and Steps, I'll put it up now as going to be my next choice. 
Okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I sort of know where I'm coming from, Jean, because sort of listening to all those authors, they're all very pacey and quite... Yeah, and, you, and you don't know where you are. You're struggling, whereas you know you're going up the Riceman steps to another level of building. Well, I mean, you just know you're in buildings. It's actually about the aftermath of the First World War on um, a soldier's psyche, and it's actually extremely interesting... It's the opposite of Mrs. Dalloway, opposite approach to mental breakdown. Yeah. And I think a similar thing has happened in films. You know, even if you go back to films from the 1980s, they feel so much slower than films today. And I don't think that's necessarily a good thing. You know, I think sometimes if you want pace, you sacrifice mood and character and depth and lots of other things. I think, yeah, and I I think a lot is being sacrificed on the altar of pace these days. That's that's my view. So, yeah, I I kind of we agree, Felicity. Well, yeah, it's not the first time we tend we agree about a fair fair number of things, Jean. I've got my sensible head on. (laughs) It won't last. Okay, ladies. So uh, we will meet again the last Monday of August. See you at the end of August. Thank you very much for your look, time. Look forward. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Guys. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. There was an interesting article in the Times about how the capital's writers lived, loved and survived during the rigours of the Blitz. So I thought that I would talk this through with you. Writing in the Dark, published by Bloomsbury, The Blitz and Horizon Magazine by Will Loxley. The London Blitz is at the heart of this book. From September 7th, 1940, the capital was bombed for 56 days and nights. 20,000 Londoners were killed and a million houses destroyed or damaged. Will Loxley's main focus, disproportionately some may think, is on how it's affected a dozen or so writers. Virginia and Leonard Wolfe's house in Tavistock Square was among those destroyed. And looking at the ruins, she could pinpoint the exact spot where she had written so many of her books. The house in Mecklenburg Square, where John Lehman had run the Hogarth Press with Leonard, was also wrecked. How ordinary Londoners fared gets less coverage, and most of what there is comes from George Orwell. His wartime diary records the fantastic rumours that circulated in 1940. Hitler, alarmist warned, would invade using thousands of speedboats that could skim over the minefields. Orwell notices that in the pub of an evening, he and his wife Eileen had to turn on the radio to hear the news. Most people didn't want to listen. Surprisingly, the most authentic account of working class conversation comes from the Silver Spoon novelist Henry Green, the pen name of Henry Vincent York. Green served in the Auxiliary Fire Service and in his Blitz novel Court in 1943, His reproduction of working-class speech was so authentic the printers refused to set it up in type until it was toned down. Perhaps it is an illusion, but there seem to be more pages in Loxley's book about the poet Stephen Spender than anyone else. That is unfortunate. It is clear in retrospect that Spender was outclassed in every field. As a poet by Auden, as an autobiographer by Orwell, as a critic by Levis. 
Perhaps it was an inkling of this that made him so avid for recognition. In Hamilton in Against Oblivion reports him as saying, It often disgusts me to read a newspaper in which there is no mention of my name. Loxley does not cite this, but he does quote the only other memorable thing Spender is on record as saying. He had various male lovers, but married twice and had two children, and he informed Christopher Isherwood in a letter that sex with a woman was more satisfactory, more terrible, more disgusting, and in fact, more everything. From the viewpoint of interest, Loxley's account of Cyril Connolly's far outstrips anything he writes about Spender, although his Connolly material tells the same story as D.J. Taylor's Lost Girls, Love, War and Literature in 2019. Connolly was lazy and greedy, dining, according to Evelyn Waugh, on truffles and lobster, despite rationing. But he proved a brilliant editor of the wartime literary monthly Horizon. Its first issue carried poems by Auden and McNeese, and in a later issue, Orwell's essay, Boys Weeklies, opened up a new kind of criticism by showing how ephemera, in the case of school stories in The Gem and the Magnet, could uncover the mindset of the whole culture. Horizon's most sensational issue reprinted a condensed version of Arthur Koisler's Arrivals and Departures, 1943, in which he described how the Nazis were transporting trainloads of Jews to extermination sites. Specifically, he gave an account of the Nazi use of mobile gas chambers to kill 152,000 Jews at Chelmno in Poland. Orland, a friend, called Arrivals and Departures, one of the most shocking descriptions of Nazi terrorism that have ever been written. And Connolly's extract was evidently the first news of the Holocaust to reach some readers. Loxley's subject does not leave much room for humour, and in that respect Dylan Thomas is a godsend. He was an irresistibly comic figure. He was terrified of violence, and his wife Caitlin recalls the strenuous steps he took to fail his army medical. She describes how he stayed up the night before at Brown's Hotel in Langhorn drinking beer, sherry, wine and gin. He had to get an early train the next day to Llanledno for the medical. And Caitlin relates, The next morning he came out in spots and was shaking and coughing his guts up. At one stage he even fainted. The medics classified him C3, unfit for service of any kind, and he returned to the Lughan jubilant. I've done it. I've got away with it. During the summer of 1940, the Thomases had stayed with a friend in Wiltshire, far from London. But even here, an occasional German pain was heard heading for the city, and Caitlin records how Dylan would bury his head under the bed covers, whimpering. She thought that Dylan sometimes made his poems unintelligible on purpose. He joked afterwards that he couldn't understand them himself. But his poem about the Blitz, a refusal to mourn the death by fire of a child in London, is both clear and a masterpiece. This is Loxley's first book, and it could have done with more severe editing. It bulges with extraneous detail and should have been cut by half at least. Some sense of design might have been introduced into it too. As it is, its focus keeps jumping around, so it is not so much a book as a series of separate studies, 
and an editor may have tactfully pointed out that a better written book about writers in the Blitz, Lara Fagel's The Love Charm of Bombs, 2013, is not even mentioned by Loxley. For all that, he is clearly a gifted writer. His best passages are often quite outside this book's scope, such as Virginia Woolf's memories of the London Lightlighter going on his rounds when she was a child. That feeling for other people's inner lives might make his next book a novel. <laughs>